Hello, and welcome to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Austin Glidden, and as always, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching Medium Cool Pod. It's facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod. You can also search Medium Cool Pod on Instagram, and we'll pop up, and at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter. You can also find us... Uh, Wait, no, no, no. That's not how this goes. You can email us. <laughs> you can email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. Uh, also, like, subscribe, follow wherever you're listening. Just make sure you do that so you can keep up with all the things medium cool. And if you're while you're at it, please uh, review, rate, whatever you can do. We appreciate you. So, all that said, I'm here to uh, introduce part two of uh, Rick Jimenez and I talking about Quentin Tarantino. I uh, ended with my feelings about Jackie Brown, and we're going to see what uh, Rick's uh, feelings about Jackie Brown are here coming soon, as well as the rest of our lists. Man, this was a really fun conversation. I love Rick. It, it, it's it's a lot of fun talking to someone like Rick because we also don't see film the same way, per se, um, and I respect his views and he respects mine. So it's like a lot of fun, you know, for me to just be like, I just don't get that. I don't really get that from this movie or I don't feel that way about this one. He can do the same. Um, and I, I really appreciate Rick because he seems like he really means like or wishes the best for every movie. You know, it's like like he's just he tries to be so positive and I love it. Um, so I hope you guys are enjoying this. Uh, again, this is part two. So if you did not listen to part one, please go back to last week's and, uh, you will definitely get a little taste of what we were doing. I don't know why I just did that. Anyways, uh, Rick Jimenez, he's coming up right now. So Jackie Brown is my number five and same thing. I never understood that. Well, okay, I understood the reservation about it, but I never understood the hate. Like you said, Pulp Fiction came out and it was an international sensation, but not just as oh, this is the movie to watch. It changed filmmaking. It changed the movie industry. Like it. it that is like one of those tentpole things in like media, as far as I'm concerned. That might be yeah, uh, a little bit of an overstatement, but I mean, all of a sudden, independent films are viable more than just oh, throwaway art house thing, and careers could be revitalized or made at the same time. And the biggest thing from my outsider point of view was after Pulp Fiction, everybody wanted to do the the time messing. The, yeah. well, you watch Pulp Fiction now, and it doesn't even seem like a... No, it oh, doesn't seem crazy, disjointed does it? time thing. But at the time, dude, it was insane. So you're looking for that in Jackie Brown, and you don't find it, which in retrospect... They, they do I think mess is, with time, but it's not to that extent. Yeah, you're right. It's well, like not to that extent, yeah. The thing is, it's not to that extent... But I get confused every so often watching Jackie Brown where I kind of still forget what the big finish is and how they get to it. I know the big yeah. finish is the big finish, but like, wait a minute. What are the plans that, you know, who's screwing who here? Where Pulp Fiction almost seems like linear to me now. Um, yeah. Where um, Jackie Brown, like, you you have to watch. You can watch just like uh, passively. 
And I still, my opinion, great movie. But if you really, really pay attention, it's like, dude, there is utter brilliance in every single thing in this. And then, of course, the cast, like you said, it's Michael Keaton playing Michael Keaton to a caricature yeah. way. And then you have uh, Robert De Niro, hey, play something totally, totally different and still make it work. And Samuel Jackson, all right, kind of take what you're kind of known for doing now, but you got to switch it up. You can't just play Jules again. Uh, and well, I think he's he the, does. Now he's the bad guy, right? I mean, technic- now, now, good guy and bad guy using that in terms of Tarantino is not really a fair point because yeah. everyone is definitely shades of gray. But he is like the villain in this. He right? is the heel in Jackie Brown. And even if he is a shade of gray in Pulp Fiction, he's still the baby face in Pulp yeah, Fiction. Yeah, 100%. Everyone loves him. Yep. But then you have, um, my opinion, uh, top tier Bridget Fonda, you know, just batting a thousand at that point. Yep. And then he said uh, Pam Greer, who gets the mention in uh, Reservoir Dogs, like, same thing. I don't think she's playing a caricature of herself to the Michael Keaton extent, but man, it's like, yo, that is top tier. Pam Greer performance to me. And then um, Max Cherry, this dude, like you said, everything he's done, I know Robert Forrester only from uh, like one-offs on 70s or 80s TV shows that are already in reruns when I'm like five or <laughs> yeah. six yeah. or the movies that are like um, Sunday afternoon movies that my mom has on that I'm pissed because I'm missing uh, all American wrestling. Yeah. And then in this movie, Every one of Tarantino's movies is going to have this, but like he is the cool guy in this movie. Like, but he doesn't look at all like a cool guy. Exactly. (laughs) But everything about (laughs) him, everything about him should not be cool. And he doesn't think he's cool in this movie. And dude, he's so fucking cool. Everything about him is so cool. And his self awareness makes it of him not being cool, makes him that much cooler. Um, and then his telling the story to Jackie Brown, how he goes and picks up, uh, well, like essentially bounty hunts with uh, yeah. Zeus after he yeah. drops uh, her Zeus. off. And at that moment, that's when she realizes, yo, this motherfucker is cool as hell, even though he's old, white, boring dude. Um, yo. Everyone in that movie is cool, even when they're not doing. And I mean, this is every one of his movies, even when they're doing shit that's not supposed to be cool, like uh, Robert De Niro shooting Bridget Fonda in the stomach. Not yeah. cool. So cool. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and same thing. Um, yeah, Bridget Fonda in that movie is just unbelievable on on all levels. I don't know about you. My exposure, first exposure to Bridget Fonda is uh, Godfather Three, which. We won't go into a conversation about that movie, which would probably yeah. be a hilarious conversation. And probably. then it's been a long time. Yeah. And then single white female. But like, dude, to me, that's her peak of hotness. Her character is so unintentionally from from uh, her point of view, unintentionally funny and then also interesting in that Tarantino way. Like, oh, yeah, I was in Japan with this dude for a year. Um, but, yeah. you know, he didn't speak yeah. English. It's like, hey. <laughs> Is that supposed to be uh, planting more seeds to uh, kill Bill? 
And there's always those that interconnected but not interconnected universe yeah. with uh, Tarantino. So, yep. yeah, hurts my feelings again to put that as low as number five, but that's where I have that. No, I got you. Yeah, I think Bridget Fonda, I think my, my first introduction was Army of Darkness, which is after the movies you said. Um, but uh, that would have been the movie I saw earliest, probably. But this is, of course, probably my favorite uh, of hers, just because she's uh, I, I love her. And I love how annoying she is to Robert De Niro. You know what I mean? Oh, it's hilarious. <laughs> like, like, yeah, just how uh, annoyed he gets. Uh, Robert Forster, though, I just want to bring this up. Uh, in 1969, he was in a movie called Medium Cool, which is the namesake of this of this podcast, Medium Cool, a movie podcast. So um, that is uh, a Robert Forster little throwback there. Um, but this was your number five, so that's good. Uh, and we'll speed things up a little bit here, I, I have a feeling. Um, my number five is uh, Django Unchained. And uh, this is uh, an inevitable number five because the uh, I think we really start to ramp up after this in terms of if I didn't have personal reasons for them to be in this order, I don't know what order they would be in. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but Django Unchained uh, is a movie I was also a little disappointed with when I saw it the first time. And then I watched it on my own. and was like, what the fuck? This rules because it has several of those moments I talked about where. Like it just fucking gets you at certain points. Um, and I, I have like a weird hang up. This is totally a personal hang up, not a judgment of the film, but I have a hang up with uh, period pieces that just rip into like modern music unless the tone <laughs> of it, unless the tone of it is uh, very much that. So like Mary Antoinette from Sofia Coppola, right? That whole vibe. I get why there's like modern rock music and stuff in it or whatever, right? Like that makes sense. But whenever you watch this, he has like fucking who who does the music for that? Because in the Hateful Eight, he did Ennio Morricone, who who's like the classic Italian Western uh, composer. Great scores that guy. Mm -hmm. And then I think he did Django Unchained. But I'm double checking right now. Um, let's see the why can't I find music? That's silly. Um. I might have to look this up more because I'm not seeing it right now. And now I'm just filling time. But while you look for it, that is something that never bothers me if it's done well. Um, and I think I love that aspect of of Django. But um, I also like uh, A Knight's Tale. Remember, <laughs> remember yeah. that movie? Hey, it's about medieval times. But ACDC, that was like the shtick of that movie. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I just dude, there's something that depending on what it is and, and I'll tell you exactly which one if I can find because uh, I don't think that um, like in Marconi has songs, but he, he took them from other movies he did scores for. So that's what I'm thinking of. But there's a point and it might be the RZA song. I thought it was like someone else, but it's that final shootout in the house where right it gets like he shoots. it's like a heavy yeah. and there's like yeah. hip hop like. Mm -hmm. Dude, just like when I was watching, I was like, why the fuck am I watching this? <laughs> like, I actually got like <laughs> upset, like because it's not that I don't like the song and it's not that I don't like the thing. But it's like you just went from Ennio Marconi and you just busted into hip. Like, it, I just can't. My brain will not go there for some reason. Totally personal. Totally personal. Um, not an uh, inerrant bad thing. Um, but that was like a hang up I had. I don't really care anymore. Now that I've seen it so many times, I expect it. It's like a part of the expectation. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't really have an issue with it anymore. Uh, but there are some really great scenes. I think um, 
the Leo DiCaprio character is really great here. Um, and uh, I'm trying to think of... Yeah, so there's a scene where um, they're all sitting around a table. And uh, Jamie Foxx's Django and Christoph Waltz's uh, Dr. King Schultz are sitting at the table. And they're trying to steal Brumhilda away from uh, uh, Calvin Candy's estate, right? Uh, plantation, if you will. So uh, they're sitting at the table, and Calvin Candy, played by Leo DiCaprio, knows what's going on. He's put it together. He's trying to out them. He's showing them hospitality, and at one point he gets really mad, and he, like, slams his hand down, but unintentionally he hits a wine glass, and he just cuts his fucking, gashes his finger over real life. Like, this is a shoot, right? And uh, they so they stop, and they're, like, wrapping his hand and everything. But then they had to play it into the movie because it was the best goddamn take that they had. So they started filming it as if he was, like, bleeding, which he was. Um, but it's like, dude, the intensity he has, like, that scene is so good. I, like, love that scene so much. There are little things, like, Jamie Foxx, I... I would not have chosen Jamie Foxx for this. I think he does very well. I think someone else could do much better. Do you feel very differently than me? I'm trying to read your face as I'm <laughs> Oh, wait. Jamie Foxx is a bit of a hang-up for me. I'm not going to lie. Oh, no, one. no, no. I mean, um, after this movie, which I, I won't talk too much. This is higher up on my list, so that's a little bit of a yeah, spoiler. Yeah. But after this movie, dude, I don't think – Jamie Foxx can do any wrong. And that is because I'm pretending the amazing Spider-Man two doesn't exist. <laughs> I was going to bring it up. <laughs> um, so yeah, yeah, I am Jamie Foxx. I mean, to me at this point, um, I, who would you put in his place? Uh, you know, I, I was just thinking that because I, I can articulate why uh, I feel this way. Christoph Waltz as Dr. King Schultz, he is fluent in Tarantino dialogue. You know what I'm saying? It's like mm -hmm. watching someone uh, like, uh, who's fucking Magneto? What's that dude's name? Why can't I think of his name? Gandalf. Um, uh, what is his fucking name? I'm so Why bad with just... names today. Well, I, I can't believe I actually just forgot this because it's a name I use all the time for this exact uh, Yeah, you're going to be thing. so mad when you figure it out because I'm going to be dude, like, oh yeah. my god, I've... I, and I'm I'm racking my brain right now to get this, and I'm not I'm not going to continue until I find it. And I'm on the page right now, and I'm Ian McKellen. Jesus yeah, fuck! What, All right, world so, renowned actor. Yeah, and I love him. I don't know why I just forgot his name. Anyways, so Ian McKellen, if you ever you should just Google or like YouTube him speaking Shakespeare, like reciting Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. It's fluent. It just sounds like anyone talking. It's just yeah. fucking perfect. And that's the way you should hear Shakespeare, because Shakespeare seems like another language to some people. But when you watch someone deliver it in such a way, it just makes sense to you. It's almost like it's like an audible osmosis or something. You know what I mean? Like, you, like you just you just like fucking get it. Like whenever you hear. It. And uh, so like Christoph Waltz fluent. I think Leonardo DiCaprio, though, he is kind of caricature ish. I think he does a great job. Of course, Sam Jackson, who is just basically Sam Jackson all the time, you know. Yeah. But dude, he like can kill this dialogue even walton goggins who plays billy crash he's like one of the uh the bad dudes 
uh, he is great with uh, dialogue. Even in the uh, Hateful Eight, he's one of the few that survive, you know, and he's he's great. Everyone's so good. Jamie Foxx, my opinion. And here I am talking about this like it's bad. It's by number five. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, but yeah. This is, my one, this is like the one hang up, which is why I'm bringing it up, is like Jamie Foxx, not fluent for me. Like it feels like a performance and I'm watching everything else and I'm like, fuck, like that's the thing that stands out to me. Who I would put in his place, dude, that's fucking tough. So here I am presenting a problem without a solution. I'm going to think on this because when we get to you, uh, wherever it is on your list, when we get there, maybe I'll have an answer for you. But well, I, I bring how this about up. this. How about this? You need to choose between John Cena, The Rock, or Roddy Piper. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! Uh, I mean, The Rock, obviously. But uh, no, um, uh, no. Uh, I, I I bring this up only just to say that this is. I only said The Rock, by the way. I, I love Roddy Piper. I just needed to know. I just think The Rock would be a better fit for this movie. Because <laughs> <laughs> I had a conversation the other like day. he's just like a fucking monster. You know what I mean? <laughs> I had a conversation the other day that I said, I know it's still a little early, but I think John Cena is a better actor than The Rock. And The Rock, is go back to what we said before, is typecast. He, in my opinion, he plays the same character in yeah. every movie, even if he's playing Maui in um, uh, yeah. Moana. Moana, but, um, yeah. So I, I w- if I had to choose a replacement in Django for Jamie Foxx, I'm picking John Cena. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first, everybody. John Cena is uh, yeah is the new um, Django. Django. But, yeah, that that could be the um, clickbait. No, yeah, no, I I, I do I, I really do love this movie now. Um, just all of the. Dude, there are uh, classic Western influences, spaghetti Western influences. There are uh, just so many aspects to this movie. It's a revenge movie. It's a uh, uh, a bounty hunter movie. It's like all of these things. I mean, even even Dr. King Schultz, like fucking little cart that has the tooth, you know, just like waving around like that's just so perfect. Uh, I really do like this. I was not as big on this movie as literally fucking everyone else that year, but I did love it. It was in my top 10. Um, and now we're getting into movies that were like act that actually made my top 10 of those years. <laughs> yeah, because I don't know if any of the others even did. Maybe they did. I don't remember. Um, but this one did. Uh, I definitely enjoy this. But for the sake of brevity, though, because we can come back to this when you get there. Uh, what's your number four? Number four, I have Kill Bill one, which I'll, I can sum this up super quick. I told you about the build up to it. So yeah. it's kind of like when you discover a new band or uh, an active band and you fall in love with their first three albums. You can't wait for that new one. It's your first time to have that, you know. Yeah. Um, so, you know, uh, Kill Bill 1 was almost like, um, eh, for the, at least for the sake of that analogy, kind of like the Black Album. You know, I got into Injustice for All first, and then, yeah. oh, Metallica has a new album. I just got into Metallica, like, a few months ago, and they have a new album coming out, or a year ago, whatever. Yeah. And then I got to be part of that whole uh, swept up in the hoopla of it all. And, dude, Kill Bill delivers, man. It's it's everything that you want, everything that I wanted at that time, and it wasn't retreading any of the ground set before. Um, yeah. Like, oh, well, some stories told out of uh, out of order time-wise, but it wasn't like, oh, well, that's the point of the whole movie. Not that 
Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs, Jackie Brown, that was the point. But it was almost like just as important. But by the time Kill Bill comes out, every movie had done that. I mean, Memento was already out, if I remember correctly. Um, So the out of orderness of it, which is between both of the the Kill Bill movies, that's okay. You come to expect it. But and you know, it's going to be Kung Fu based, which is like I was never huge Mr. Kung Fu movie guy. But I mean, I know, you know, I've seen Fist of Fury and think it's sick. You know, I've seen The Way of the Dragon and like, you know, I know the the Bruce Lee movies and, you know, the the random ones that you catch at uh, Sunday after Robert Forrester movies are over and (laughs) you already missed wrestling, you know, so you you catch, you know, 40 minutes of a Sonny Chiba movie or whatever. Um, But then also the incorporation of anime in it, which is just so brilliant and stupid little bells and whistles that aren't stupid. Hey, look, it's in black and white now. Like, Oh, who gives a shit? Hey, I give a shit. It's fucking cool. And, yeah. um, hey, not a big deal now. Shouldn't have been a big deal in 2004. But, hey, a woman-led action movie of death and destruction and revenge. Like, yo, that's sick. Um, and we're going to get to this later on a little bit. But any, 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 any type of minority representation, um, not only like, oh, that's important. We all know it's important. We're all, you know, progressive individuals at the time. Uh, but in my life, that's always going to, um, I don't know, man. Like that always strikes a chord with me even today. And not because of like people whining, oh, PC culture and all this shit. Get over yourself. Not because of that. Because it just, it hits a chord with me. I was raised by females. Mom and two sisters. That's it. Um, I am half minority. So whenever that type of thing comes up, it's going to hit a chord with me. Hey, guess what? I'm a human that thinks all humans deserve cool human stuff. So then it's going to hit a chord with (laughs) me. Cool human stuff. (laughs) So, um, all of that, but strip all that aside. Yo, this movie fucking kicks ass from start to beginning. What more needs to be said? Yeah. Yeah. From start to beginning. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I get what you mean. Though. I know what you mean. No, it's um, yeah, dude. I, I, I mean, I'm gonna talk about it here soon, but uh, I'm really glad that you brought that up. And um, it is, it is just a, a badass movie that has um, so many aspects. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring up one thing now, uh, and ask you: Do you know why that black and white scene exists? Why it went to black and white? No. No, I, uh, I, if it was, um, I guess if if it was like late two thousands WWE because of the blood, but I know that's not the case. <laughs> yes. No, actually, it is. Um, so uh, the it was going to get an X rating for that scene. Oh, because it was so violent, limbs being cut off, blood, mm-hmm. all of this stuff. So just making it black and white like diffused it enough, but. Whenever he did uh, the whole bloody affair, which was whenever he put both films together and actually toured them around and had them uh, screen. And I believe I want to say the Japanese version of the film was all color, um, but uh, I might be wrong there. Uh, but he he made it not black and white because that was not his choice, but it was a choice he had to make. This is my understanding, if I remember correctly. 
Um, but that is uh, an interesting thing here. I feel like um, I'd be bummed out watching that without the black and white scene at this point. Well, it, yeah, it's it's a fun thing now, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and uh, I I never had a problem with that. I thought it was cool, especially because it turns black and white right when she blinks. You know. Well, yeah. Like, well, when she pokes out the dude's eye, the crazy eighty-eight's eye, and then it's black and white, and then she blinks, and the color is yeah, back that's on. Right, that's right. You're right. Yeah. Now I want to go watch all of these again. I have like yeah, I know. I'm gonna, I'm gonna me, you know wind up um, in that situation too, <laughs> but. Uh, no, so my number four is Inglorious Bastards. I can wrap this up pretty quickly because um, I think this might be the best script he ever wrote. Um, and I don't mind the changing of history at the end, but I'm telling you, I've, I, it's very rare that I watch a film that strikes me this hard and, and all of the striking aspects of it are dialogue-based. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sequence, the opening, is unbelievably paced and unbelievably uh, structured. Uh, it's amazing. Um, I already mentioned this earlier, but just the way that he is able to sustain tension by introducing new bits of information. Um, and he does it a great. few times throughout that movie, too. Well, yeah. So the other one is the bar sequence with uh, Michael Fassbender, where they're down there and they're trying to talk to uh, what is her name? Um, anyways, they're trying to uh, talk through their plan on how they're going to get into whatever this gala is uh, with Hitler there or whatever. Um, let me find out. I forget her name. Uh, Bridget uh, von Hammerschmark is, um, <laughs> is the actress. And um, it's a chance for Tarantino to nerd out about movie shit, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. But my only hang up with this movie, again, another movie I was relatively disappointed seeing the first time because my hopes were just so fucking high. And um, then I later watched it. I'm like, this is the fucking greatest movie. Ever yeah. <laughs> I don't know how that changed, but I'll tell you what my only hang up. And, and this is kind of crazy because this is part of what people love about it is uh, all of the stuff with Lieutenant Aldo Rain and the actual inglorious bastards like the, the all of the scenes with the namesake people, you know, uh, feel so ridiculous and caricature. I think they're great. Yeah, I'm just saying they feel so almost silly. And then all of the other sequences are fucking banger intense. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, they're, like, legit good. They're not as ridiculous. They're, like, more grounded. There's more going on. And then you get, like, Brad Pitt's ridiculous accent, you know? Oh, dude. We had – there was, like, a string of shows. We were on tour with This Is Hell. I don't remember what caused it, but – between songs, something happened that we had to take a break. Maybe somebody broke a string or something. And Travis is talking to the crowd. And I don't know what happened, but some somebody might have been like, wait, what? What did you say? And then for some reason, they're like, wait, who is that? And one of us just says into the microphone, Gorlami. And then it just like <laughs> one person laughed and then made a joke. And then it just wound up being like a, a four-minute segment between songs, like accidentally, with just like finding ways to throw in Gorlami over and over again. And I think this was like the MySpace days because the next morning, our MySpace was filled with like Gorlami wall posts or whatever, uh, testimonials. Was that Friendster? (laughs) I don't remember. But um, it's funny. I kind of forgot about that, that that was like a, a big thing. 
the Gorlami joke, but dude, dude that yeah, it's the, so you're talking about the tension just over and over again. It, there's so many scenes like that. And then by the time, um, what, uh, Bridget's loses her heel. Yeah. And, uh, she gets shot in the leg. Yep. And King Schultz is putting the heel back on. King Schultz. <laughs> <laughs> they know at that point or Tarantino yeah. knows at that point, Hey, we've done this so many times with the building, the tension, and they kind of breeze right through that. But the thing is, you're so like, every scene has that double agent kind of tension that even though that's like the quickest of those in that movie, that it's, movie, it's just as much. It's just as intense, almost as more intense. Yeah. Um, th- that is shot perfectly. Every single frame that he captures, uh, whether it's like the hands around the neck, the close up of her eyes bugging out uh, Hans Landa's face just the whole time. Because he'll go from static face to like. Like unbelievable anger to just back to like normal, you yeah. know, and it's uh, everything he does also is just a development of those characters. Um, everyone's so good. But I think of all of these sequences. And every time the Brad Pitt crew are there, it's ridiculous. It is. When they ridiculous. go in, when they go into the theater and they get tackled, that's comical. It's like a joke, you know, like the way they get tackled. It's yeah. silly. Um, but like even when Hans Landa's with them, he's a joker. You know, that's a bingo. Yeah, you know, yeah. like that stuff. And it's like really ridiculous. And just a few seconds ago, he was with Bridget von Hammersmark, and it's like the most intense thing yeah. you've ever seen, right? Or whenever he shows up when uh, Mel- Melanie Laurence uh, Shoshana is uh, at the, it's like sitting with Goebbels and like all oh, of the propaganda yeah. crew, and Hans Landa shows up again. Exactly what I said earlier with the farmer scene, the tension's there, but you think she's out of it. And then yep. Hans Landa puts his hand on his shoulder or whatever, yeah. right? Or what, however that is introduced. I mean, he is his writing is just fucking peaked, you know? And I would have watched a movie of just the Inglorious Bastards. If yeah, it were that yeah. silly, like, I wouldn't like it as much. But, I, dude, I would watch it. It'd be fun. The sequence where the bear, quote, unquote, yeah. uh, Eli Roth's uh, Donnie Donowitz, whenever he comes out as the bear and he just hits that. Nazi with the bat. You know oh, what I mean? and the fact that they show it is so funny, and his ridiculous, crappy accent is so cool. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 just a night and day. That's honestly th- like because th- you mentioned when you said it, you were like, man, it's like a fucking perfect movie. That's my only thing because I like both things. They don't quite blend. It doesn't for work. Me. Yeah, I got. But you. that's the only thing. That's it. That's it. I love this movie so much. And they brought a lot of actors that I absolutely adore that at this point maybe weren't household names. So Michael Fassbender, for example, was not. Uh, I think the biggest thing he did before that was Hunger, which was a Steve McQueen movie, uh, not to be mistaken with the uh, former actor. Uh, Daniel Bruhl, who played Frederick Zoller, who's trying to uh, basically get in the pants of Shoshana, (laughs) the German Nazi kid. Um, He's in, dude, he has been a German actor. He was like a big deal for years. I've watched so many German movies with him. Yeah. Uh, He's fucking awesome. And the list goes on, though. I mean, there are a bunch of people uh, that are that way. Yeah, dude, it's just so many. So, uh, again, for the sake of brevity, because I already have a feeling I know probably if I had to guess what our top twos are going to be. Um, We've already talked about my top three or my my number three, but I want to hear your number three first. I'll go pretty quick, I'm sure. But what is your number three? 
So this is difficult, but I have my justification. Uh, but it's fine. <laughs> Number three, Reservoir Dogs. Wow. For, yeah. Not for, what I expected. Okay. For probably oh, almost two decades, Reservoir Dogs was my go-to answer whenever, oh, what's your favorite movie? Reservoir Dogs. Uh, it, I saw Pulp Fiction first. Then I saw Reservoir Dogs. Um, and I wound up becoming like obsessed with Reservoir Dogs, like in the same way. Oh, I love Metallica. You know, uh, Injustice for All was first, then Black Album, then you get everything else. And then at one point, I'm like, yo, Kill Em All is my favorite. Like the first one is because of first thing types of uh, things. So, um, I mean, Reservoir Dogs was probably because it was not not the first um, Tarantino movie, but the one I had to dig for and wasn't what Pulp Fiction was in the mainstream. Sure. Um, probably that is the movie that was responsible for me watching movies and thinking more like um, – not critical, but maybe uh, may, uh, this is so pre pretentious because I'm not even this now, but a bit more like um, thinking as an educated film watcher more than, oh, I like to watch movies. And I'm, I'm not even an educated film watcher now. I but know I know you mean that, well, but I you have more experience. Like you have more um, experience, yeah. And it opened my eyes more towards like, why is a movie directed a certain way? Uh, why is dialogue used a certain way? Why does a camera move away from something and move back to it? And not just the, um, oh, we didn't film the Wampa scene in Empire Strikes Back because we didn't have the budget for it. So we just showed the arm getting hacked off. And no, it was more um, artistic that way. Anyway, not that, but hey, we pulled away from the ear uh, hacking scene on purpose. Uh, this movie is in this order on purpose. Like everything was a, a specific reason why it was done. I, I know like in 2022, like, well, of course everybody knows this shit, but you know, me at, I, when did I say, I probably saw this in 94 or 95. Um, I never thought about movies like that. You know, um, the only thing that I had really dug into a bit at that point I had started to really think I understood wrestling at that point. And, you know, I, I, I'm starting to like draw my own comic books at this point. So I have to learn how to tell stories as opposed to just reading and knowing nice, I like yeah. something. Um, but then on top of that, the same thing, like a cast, not just the actors, but the actual characters of some of the, the coolest people and it's like, wait a minute, that's not somebody you want to think is cool. You don't want to think Mr. Blonde is cool. Like, it was probably like a four-year period where there was nobody cooler on screen to me than Michael Madsen as Mr. Blonde. Yeah. And it's like, first off, not even good at his job in the in the movie. Because <laughs> um, it's like, you think, oh, he's like the most badass one. Like, no, like he in fact was an unprofessional maniac who winds up getting killed easily also because he's like a stupid psychopath. Hey, guess what? So cool. Are you going to bark all day, little doggy, or are you going to bite? Probably yeah. the stupidest line ever. Also probably the best line I've ever heard in my entire life. Yeah, yeah. It's Unbe yeah. Unbelievably cool. <laughs> um, and I, I don't care who wrote it. 
Um, I, I mean, I, I do care who writes about it as far as like being a cool character. The delivery by Michael Madsen that makes Mr. Blonde. I had a poster of him. And it's so funny because the poster isn't even from like a screenshot from the movie. It was like posed and taken of him leaning on the car with the drink in his hand. Like, and it had the quote, like a big poster that you would get at like Spencer or whatever the fuck. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it has the quote, are you going to bark all day, little dog? Are you going to bite? Um, so, so cool. So, I mean, this movie is like the epitome of cool filmmaking and cast and same thing. What it's like the location is you got some LA scenes, but the majority of this shit is in a abandoned warehouse, which knowing what you know now, you know, like, Hey, why does every heavy band like, Oh, what's your video? Oh, it's just us playing in a warehouse because it's cheap and it's easy and whatever. So like same thing. First movie, I got to make this work, but I only have a budget of X amount of dollars. Yeah, find a way to do it in a warehouse. Um, so it has that kind of like DIY, I don't really want to say punk vibe to it, but, you know, to a certain extent. I hate when people totally describe does, things. Well, I, I get what you mean, but I I, I, I agree with that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that again, that like hits home with me forever because, I mean, even before I knew what punk was and was just solely metal guy. Um, everything I've done, I've grown up poor. So everything you do has to be like shoestring and DIY to a certain extent. So instead of going from uh, major motion pictures that I'm used to watching with big budgets and all this flash to something, you know, very different at that time and being like, yo, this looks like it was recorded on a uh, a camcorder. What the fuck? Um, not that it does, but in comparison in the 90s. It was like right away, this is gritty, but this is like different and it's rad. And even if you've seen Pulp Fiction, the dialogue delivery in Reservoir Dogs is, is you know, a, a it's more dialogue based. Um, dude, that yeah. opening scene that. Oh, and I know like this is it's so cliche to talk about this opening scene, but I mean. It's the diner scene, man. It, it's the diner scene and and every other cliche you heard people talk about a million times. That's how, you know, you talk to your friends. You've never seen that on a movie before. But like, yo, Kevin Smith movies did not happen before Reservoir Dogs. And then after Kevin Smith movies, all these other things, it's, it's, it's so commonplace now. But dude, anything but commonplace at that time. And, you know, my formative years, man, your early teen years. Um. Yeah, this, this, this was like a life-changing movie for me. Yeah, this is why the 90s were so awesome. <clears throat> because in the 70s, we have the first blockbuster, Jaws. Okay, And then, of course, you have your your Close Encounters, your Star Wars, your all, you know, then go in the 80s, E.T., Indiana Jones, blah, blah, blah. It starts to become that, right? But as they are developing all those things, technology is becoming smaller and smaller. You can get cameras for cheaper and rent them cheaper and things go on and on and on then you have uh uh the independent boom of the 90s and uh tarantino was chief among them of course you had robert rodriguez you had uh your kevin smith wes anderson came later paul thomas anderson came later um all of these things but Dude, like Reservoir Dogs, the way people fucking talk, and I'm not talking about the actual words used. 
I'm talking about the exchanges between people and how people talk around a table um, is so different. Now, even someone like Woody Allen was doing this uh, in the 80s and 70s, where people would sit around a table and have this incredibly believable, overlapping dialogue where the people are reacting when they're not talking. And, you know, whereas a lot of other movies would just have like over the shoulder shots of someone else. And, you know, it's a very controlled kind of linear conversation, whereas Reservoir Dogs doesn't feel that way, even though it is. But it doesn't feel that way. You know what I mean? And and um, but at the same time, I bring up Woody Allen, but. Tarantino's movies nothing like his mm-hmm. so we see that style almost and I, I'm not comparing them I'm just saying that kind of delivery yep in a completely new context um, and we see these criminals as like normal people that was something that like blew people's mind like these are just dudes like just some guys yeah they're gonna go do like a bad thing but right now they're just talking about Madonna and like big dicks you know what i'm saying like that's what they're doing they're having breakfast before they go to work let's go to work yeah yeah. favorite uh (laughs) it's like one of my favorite lines yeah um all right i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna move forward because we've already talked about this one uh quite a bit um but uh i combined both of the kill bills for my number three and uh because I just cannot watch one without the other. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just have to have like three and a half hours set aside to knock these out. Or like you said, the very next day, pick it up. Because they just work so well to me as a movie. Whereas for me, I if I voted them or if I looked at them separately, I actually might move them down the list. Mm-hmm. That's the difference for me is um, because of the pacing of volume two and stuff. For me, it fits so much better when it is um, starting the last half of the movie. You know, it's like the second half of the second act is volume two. You yes, know what I'm saying? Ab- absolutely. And that's, that's usually the moment where you do bring it down and you mm-hmm. really start kind of redeveloping certain things and uh, adding more context and continuing that story. But usually in kind of a slower way, there's more information being given there's more context and uh, i mean the fact that we see uh the wedding rehearsal uh, that's what i was gonna what say I mean? it's it's almost like kill bill one is act one and kill bill two is act two and three you know because you're starting the movie with an act two which is yeah. um you know if it's if it's actually is it's just own movie without being a part two you know starting with that act two feel is yeah. really odd so odd, in fact, that it's Act 2 and not Act 1. That's why it's yeah. <laughs> all bad. It's not made yeah. to start a movie I, like that. Uh, I actually watched Volume 1 right before I went to the theater to see 2. So I actually kind of had this experience a little mm-hmm. bit. That was like my uh, going into it. Because I remember I went, to, I went to Best Buy. And when Volume 2 was coming out, they put out a box set where you got you bought the first movie and they gave you a sleeve mm-hmm. that had room for the second movie when it came out. It wasn't out yet, but it was like a custom sleeve that they had. Uh, and I had that for fucking it until I got rid of the DVDs, basically. But I had yep. like the DVD of it. Same. And so I bought that. And then uh, I think I might have already had the movie. I might have just gotten like the the little sleeve. But I, I probably I might have bought the movie. The point is, I got it. I watched it, went to the theater, watched this. And it just all fucking worked for me, man. And honestly, in many ways, the though I think uh, Volume 1 is way more fun to watch. Like, if I were literally just going to put something on and, like, clean the house 
or something, I'd put volume one on <laughs> because I don't have to focus as much for volume yeah. one. Volume one is much more just like generally entertaining. But volume two, man, is like that has the big fucking deep cuts for me. Like that's like the heavy hitters for me. It's um the sequence where uh, the bride gets buried alive. I already brought that up before, but that is like one of my fucking favorite moments of either part. You know, um, the uh, the <laughs> I, I do love the Shogun Assassin thing, but only because I'm like a, a lone wolf and cub guy. But <laughs> um, but anyways, uh, yeah, it, it's I don't know, man. It's just it's just so good, I think. And it allows like my brain starts to kick in. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, I don't know. I'm, I feel like there's just like more fulfilling for me to watch volume two but god damn it that first one's so good yep <laughs> you know what i mean and so like when i watch them together it's like i get the best of both worlds you know mm-hmm. i get that oh, super fun time and then i get like what i would maybe perceive and i don't think this is actually accurate but what i would perceive as like some substance you know what i'm saying and it just makes the whole experience so much better for me and i i absolutely i love that you love kill bill and i share that love with you um I have a. I'm not gonna guess, but I have a guess what your number two is. Um, but I would like you to uh, give me your number two. So my number two is Django Unchained. Um, this was the first time I saw this movie. Same thing, you know. So much like I wonder what I'm gonna think about the next Tarantino movie, and then um, I was like, I, you know, I'm not really a big fan of Jamie Fox. Like, as it is, or whatever. But um, I watch it, and right away I'm like, oh, same thing that I felt like with um, uh, Hollywood. Early on, like, it's just immediately like, oh, of, of course I love this. Now, the thing with this movie, when I f- first saw it and then got the Blu-ray... I figured this would because it's this movie is potentially the heaviest of of all of his movies. So I thought this wouldn't be one that wound up in regular rotation where pretty quickly this became my new go to if I was going to watch a Tarantino movie. And then after after that, it became, yo. I know this can't ever be number one on my list because it, <laughs> because it, it just it just can't be number one. But as far as take legacy out of it, it's my favorite right now. So even right now, even though I'm not putting it number one, this is my favorite and my go to. And on top of all of that, if you're taking out um, like franchises, so no Marvel. Uh, no Star Wars, nothing with um, like I'll even include like Godfather as not a franchise movie, but you know, sure. the, the, the bigger franchise guys. Now I'm not saying of all time, but right now, Django Unchained, not even just right now, but right now and for the past probably like five years, Django Unchained is my favorite movie. Um, yeah. Now this hits Every single thing I think that I want in a movie where the action is there, the humor is there, the cast is there. Um, I really like the weight of the movie where 
I, I always liked it, but I didn't think I would be able to enjoy it on repeat viewing yeah. um, to the extent. And now I don't mean repeat like, oh, watch this like twice a year or like once a year. But I mean like there was a time maybe like uh, it was during the pandemic still, but there was a time during the pandemic where I had to stop myself from watching this movie more than once a week because I didn't want to get sick of it. And then sometimes yeah. like, well, let me just give in and watch as much as I want. And if I get sick of it, I get sick of it. Um, now I don't watch it once a week anymore, but it's not that I'm <laughs> sick of it. It's more yeah. like I don't have time to – there's like other things that are new, especially because I'm a wrestling guy and I'm a Marvel guy. There's so much stuff to keep up with. Yeah. But um, all of those things and then everything like I said before, not just the weight of the movie that it's a weighty movie, but the specific weight of the movie hits close to home with me. Um. And instead of that being something that I shy away from that, like, I don't, oh, I, I can't watch this all the time. Like, yeah, I want to. And, uh, even though like it's a journey each time, it's easier because I know the end result and I can't wait for that end result every time. Um, and the thing that I thought I was going to dislike about the movie on rewatches also is there's a couple like false finishes to the movie and we're like, oh, that could have been the end. Well, duh, that's what a false finish is. But I mean, it goes <laughs> probably like 35 minutes longer than it really needs to. But that's a positive to me because I always want more. I don't that want it to last end. 35 minutes is fucking banging though. Oh, oh of course, of you course. Know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, and even I get so, what you mean. I get what you mean. Even throwing in like, oh, here's the australian guys like yeah what this doesn't need to be here but or, or, sure or i'm like, glad it is <laughs> or like the sequence where all the kkk guys are in the field oh. and they're all arguing about like whose wife cut the bags wrong or whatever bags or you know no what I mean? bags yep that was that was a joke that yeah. we um well different context but the line wound up in uh <laughs> a recurring joke on the tour we just finished all right so bags or no bags Dude, um, uh, Jonah Hill in a Tarantino movie, unbelievable. Um, I can't believe I can't remember his name. Sonny Crockett. Um, <laughs> I don't remember <laughs> who. The fuck is his Hold real on. name? Um, the, Dude, the f- Don Johnson's great. Don Johnson. Jeez, yes, yeah, Sonny Crockett from Miami Vice. Don yep. Johnson is amazing in that movie dude everybody it's just that move like you know what i don't have to go on now especially because I, I continue to do it. that is my favorite movie unfranchise related right now still and it has been for like five years i, I dude i could i could gush about this movie for um yeah. hours and hours and go and hey remember that well, scene but we, we don't have to and we already you know you went over the you know, the different scenes here and there and Samuel Jackson playing Samuel Jackson again, but with a little twist, a little twist. Ah, yeah. yeah. So, so good. It's great, man. It, it really is. They're, they're just, I almost forget about those other sequences like the, the, uh, the, uh, KKK bag stuff on, and, uh, anything before Candyland, yeah. you kind of, you know, push to the side, but I mean, yeah, there, well, there's I remember all gold. the bounty hunter stuff. And then I remember Candyland and it's like, well, there's actually stuff between this mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's yep. stuff like later with Tarantino playing an Australian with a terrible accent. Oh, it's so good. Um, 
but uh yeah it, it's it's so great uh and and i'm just gonna go to my number two because our number one seems to be the same and uh because my number two is reservoir dogs and this was my first tarantino as i said before but uh i think this our shared number one and inglorious bastards are his best scripts and the thing that i love about his scripts is uh inglorious bastards the reason i said that may be my favorite just script of his not necessarily executed i have a number one of course but like just the way that that the structure the how it builds those really intense moments just through talking like that bar sequence with michael fassbender is like 25 minutes long or something how do you keep people in that's a long fucking time yeah i would never keep people think that watching it was that long in talking. retrospect yep yeah and it's fucking amazing and so Reservoir Dogs is the same way. Everything from, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Orange, whenever he's actually a cop and he's like rehearsing his lines, you know, for the story he has to tell. And uh, Joe and um, uh, Mr. Who the fuck am I? Why can't I think of? I'm like embarrassed to forget these people's <laughs> names. Um, I know their na- The funny thing is this time I know their names. Mr. Yeah. White. Yeah. God, that's uh, Harvey Keitel. Uh, who is essentially responsible for this getting made. I want everyone to know, so thanks to him. Um, but, uh, dude, just the opening sequence, fucking phenomenal. Just being able to talk about random shit and have these observations that just humanize all the characters, going from Madonna and big dicks and virginity to uh, I don't tip to XYZ, right? All the things. Um the re- the relationship between Tim Roth and Harvey Keitel's characters and Tim Roth being shot and just you see the blood pool up more and more as the film goes on. And he just gets paler and paler and how that all turns out where at the end he admits to being a cop and Harvey Keitel shoots him <laughs> like like you don't see it, but you see it go black. Yep, and you yep. see you hear Harvey Keitel doing this hilarious cry. Harvey Keitel's the funniest crier in the business, in my opinion, because he just makes this. He just like does. It's like someone who doesn't know how to cry. That's how he actually really cries, though, like in real life. So it's like I feel bad making fun of this guy, but it's it's like Seth Rogen's laugh. It's like you can't make that up. You know what I mean? So anyways, uh, Tim Roth and Harvey Keitel, though, like, dude, it cuts to black and Harvey Keitel fucking shoots him and the cops shoot Harvey Keitel like that's crazy. You know, Um, this is just a fucking bummer, this whole movie. But it's it reminds me of exactly a 70s movie. Um, even the aesthetic of it almost mm-hmm. looks like uh, a 70s movie. There's a point where Harvey Keitel's sitting with Lawrence Tierney's Joe, like the boss. And uh, it's the first time he, I think he just got out of prison or something. He needed some work. But all the it's like whenever Chris Penn's nice guy, Eddie, comes in and they're like wrestling in Joe's oh, office. Yeah, yeah, and he's yeah. like, cut uh, it out, yeah, kids. Madsen. You know, the the aesthetic. Oh, oh, yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Uh, that that scene is with Michael Madsen. But I, either way, like that that office. Yep, is, yep, it's it's uh, so uh, like dark seventies, um, like dirty Harry ish villain, and like I often hate that type of lighting, but because it's a movie from the nineties that is very clearly intentionally doing this, I just like love it, man. It's just there's not a missed step in this movie, and if I didn't like my number one more, this would be so happily my number one. Yeah. This is just the fucking greatest. Uh, all and it's all dialogue, like you said. This is those. In, this is the precursor to those inglorious bastard sequences mm-hmm. that they were able to make this uh, that good. So, anyways, uh, Reservoir Dogs. You talked about it a bit. I'm 
I'll just I'm going to stop because I'll talk about it too long. <laughs> uh, and also, I mean, the cast, of course, Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, Michael Madsen, Chris Penn, Steve Buscemi. Don't even get me started on that guy. Lawrence Tierney, uh, at Tarantino himself, Edward Bunker. Uh, these are all like the main dudes. Um, but yeah, you there's just there's just a lot to this movie. And if you're listening, you've never seen Reservoir Dogs. Shame on you. Go, <laughs> go watch it now. I'm shaming now. Uh, but dude, just the way it's shot, everything is just so perfect. But there is a more perfect movie. And I want you to share what our number one is, Rick. Well, I mean, obviously, it's Pulp Fiction. <laughs> yeah. um, so, like I said, as far as watching movies, Reservoir Dogs was like life changing. But Pulp Fiction teed it up for me. So yeah. I almost... It's almost like, well, then maybe Pulp Fiction was the life-changing one. But, I mean, first off, whether or not it is my favorite anymore, at one point, this was my favorite movie. And I thought, you know, but I, I can't not put this as number one because I've never gotten sick of this movie. Yeah. And in most ways, even though this is, you know, for me, a list of my favorites, not what's the best. Like, yeah, yeah. Pulp Fiction to me is the the best it is the best of these movies and maybe the best movie ever made um and thankfully like i said nobody has to hold me to anything i could change my mind in 10 minutes or it's just my <laughs> yeah. opinion anyway but uh i mean what is wrong about this uh nothing yeah nothing like the the action is unbelievable again everything we just said the dialogue you know the breaking ground on doing stuff out of order, but a tied together story. And yeah, and this is, um, I mean, to, to kind of sum up what you're saying here, just real quick. The funny thing is, uh, Pulp Fiction is everything that we have said about all the other movies at its best. Exactly. Exactly. You and, get what I'm saying? It's like fucking great, dude. And to go, I keep talking about how the you know, Tarantino's characters are, they're always cool. Um, butch, my opinion, Bruce Willis as Butch is the coolest character um, in fiction. Um, I, I, I can't – and I'm like racking my brain even right now, even though I've had this conversation a million times. I cannot think of a cooler character in fiction than Butch. I mean Wolverine is really, really <laughs> cool. Um, and I'm going that far, you know, I'm going into comic books. I mean, uh, if we're going to go into movies, I know he's not supposed to be cool. I think Chris Evans as Captain America, uh, has totally changed the way I think about the character, Captain America. I think he's so cool. Um, I mean, what, who else do we think is, is super cool and everything? You know, Han Solo is cool. Yeah, all the, yeah, all yeah. these Han characters Solo, yeah. that are like these classic, like, oh, that's the cool character. Nobody is cooler than Butch. Nobody yeah. is cooler than Butch in any way, shape, or form. Uh, I know it was Tarantino, but I credit it not even to Bruce Willis, but I credit it to Butch, who uh, helped me discover the Statler brothers um, while he's driving yep. um, his girlfriend's car, uh, Fabian. Yep. Um, yo, do you ever listen to uh, that podcast, The Rewatchables? 
Okay. I, I should check it out because it already sounds awesome, but no. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, what Bill Simmons, which some people have different points of view. And they talk about movies. They have all these character um, awards that they give out for each movie, like um, within their show, joke things. They have a category for the Butch's Girlfriend Award for each movie, which is like a character they all hate and think is useless. Butch's Girlfriend, I, first off, I don't hate her in the movie. And I don't think her character is useless either. Um, but I mean, like, could be a complete throwaway character, absolutely vital to the plot line and the development of, if not the entire movie, Bruce Willis's seg or Butch's segment to the movie, but then Butch's segment to the movie is so important to the whole movie. So in that part, a like world famous podcaster, sports writer and movie critic and, you know, media guy, um, thinks this character is useless so i respect his opinion and this movie is so perfect that this useless throwaway character to me is vital to this yeah. movie um i mean you just talked about why the character is not useless so <laughs> I, yeah yeah i mean um but but i will say this though that you know i i understand that someone like with some slight rewrites you could write out the character and I think that's what they're probably getting at. Uh, but I'd here's the thing. But here's the thing. Using a wrestling analogy again. Um, you don't want to. All right. So you have someone that you're given a big push to be the world champion. Okay. We'll say. Uh, we'll say. Um, Hangman Adam Page. I don't fucking know. Whenever he's going up against Kenny. Right. And so uh, he's he's going up against Kenny Omega. And uh, a week before they go into a fight, he wrestles uh, one of the Dark Order and gets pinned clean in the middle of the ring. You don't want that. No. This is the guy that you're building to be a specific something. We have to believe he can beat Kenny Omega, or why are we buying this fucking pay-per-view? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, you don't bury your guy the week before they're about to have their title. Mm -hmm. match. You know what I'm saying? Um, uh, Butch, he just pulled off the fucking, it's not a heist, but like the caper of the century here by ripping off, uh, Marcellus Wallace and his crew, right. By essentially saying he would fix the match and then he beats the guy, unfortunately kills him. But you know, uh, this dude is meticulous. It is not believable that Butch would forget the one thing. That his father carried in his fucking ass. Yeah. And that Christopher Walken carried in his fucking ass to get to him. If it means that much to him, he's not forgetting that fucking watch. You have to have the fall guy. Mm -hmm. This is why they put Hangman Adam Page in against Kenny Omega in a tag match where Hangman has one of the Dark Order with him and Kenny has, you know, one of the Bucks with him or something. And then they wrestle and the Dark Order guy gets pinned. Not Hangman. Because you're not burying Hangman. Yep. Do you get what I'm saying? Oh, dude, abs absolutely. You don't bury Bud. Oh, wait, <laughs> wait not Bud. Sorry, I, I just, like, changed movies. Um, uh, Why did I just space out everything? Hold on one second. Butch, Jesus. Yep. Sorry, I was just like, wait, how did I just forget this guy's name? I was literally just talking about him. Um, But, yeah, you can't bury Butch. I disagree. So I'm, I'm with you. I disagree with the naysayers of Fabian. Yeah. She is in, she is incredibly important, and uh, she is a motivation for Bruce Willis as well. 
So there's uh there there's there's a lot going on there. But but I I understand why someone would say it. I just don't agree with it. I'm glad you brought that up. That was interesting. Because <laughs> I've never heard anybody say that. I actually uh tend to find people that think she's cool. So that's interesting. Now I yeah. want to like listen to this. Um great podcast. Lots of fun. Lots of fun. Um but I mean I could go on and on. Uh John Travolta, obviously. Um my introduction to Uma Thurman and what a mind fuck her whole involvement in this movie is to at least me at that time. Um, she didn't even look like what a leading lady was in a movie to me at that time. So much so that I feel like that gets, Hey, just in case you're not really paying attention the bathroom scene when she's doing coke in the bathroom and mm-hmm, she mm-hmm. lifts her head up and all the other girls around her are kind of like your your typical late 90s chicks and yeah. she's so different um Samuel Jackson I only knew him as the uh the robber from coming to America uh before this movie and he was like that's a who the fuck is this asshole to Louis Anderson yeah. in uh, McDowell's? That was like a staple between me and my sisters in our childhood, just saying that all the time. And just Samuel Jackson as that character. And then seeing him in Pulp Fiction, like, it's the robber from McDowell's. Um, you know, and yep. he's absolutely unbelievable. The soundtrack is like... So fucking great. So unbelievable at the time. I, you know, my sister got that on cassette and I took it from her. Um, sorry, sister. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, what else could be said about this movie that hasn't been said uh, like a billion times? But I mean, dude, this is a perfect, timeless movie. It really is. I mean, uh, if you're a film lover, you're going to find all kinds of Easter eggs that Tarantino oh, brings in there. Dude, Every introducing fucking- the... the in- Introducing um, to my consciousness, even like uh, the possibility of Easter eggs, like I didn't know you could do that. And I've always loved that type of stuff, like some form of uh, connectability or reference. And so much so that I feel like I would make stuff up like that in other facets of things. Um, And obviously getting into comic books, then you start to – everything's connected and you love it. So seeing that in movies where like – even if it was like looking for references to the first two Rocky movies in the butch uh, boxing scenes, as far as like colors of the robe and stuff like that, like "Ah, I'm just making that shit up. And then you find out like, Oh no, the, the, you know, same thing. The whole reason why we're talking about this, the finding out about uh, Tarantino and directors like, Oh yeah, this director is like a big uh, movie nerd. So he'll constantly reference other movies. Like, yeah. I didn't know you could do that. I mean, yeah, every every weapon that Butch picks up before he goes back down to save Marcellus Wallace, every weapon is a reference to a film. Just go yeah. back and then, like, just Google it. Like, when he picks the hammer up, like, Google what that is because mm-hmm. you'll find what he's doing, right? Um, the chainsaw. It's like, Google what that is. Like, you'll get it. You know what I mean? Um, of course, you know, he's a huge, like, samurai movie fan, so, of course, he ends with the samurai sword yeah. and... Um, and even the way he shoots it is a very like classic samurai style where he slashes the guy and he has a big slash. He stands there for mm-hmm. a second and then he falls. And uh, I mean, all of these are, are classic uh, pumpkin and honey bunny. 
starting the movie that way and then like fucking with the time and coming back to it at the end now that we have context is so fucking good. The fact that that John Travolta's Vincent Vega, brother of Michael Madsen's character in Reservoir Dogs, but uh, Vincent Vega is in the bathroom taking a shit. Oh, and Sam Jackson. Every time to, something big happens in that movie, he's taking your shit like yep. so stupid. And obviously everyone's seen the movie. So it's like, obviously that's like, yeah, we all know whatever. But I mean, again, you have to put yourself in that time, like not even saying, oh, I'm going to go to the bathroom. But then like it's a vital part of the movie. The fact that this dude takes shits again, going back to the diner scene at Reservoir Dogs, like, well, yeah, he's a human. He's going to go and take a shit. It just happens to take shit at the like most inopportune times. Yeah. Like, and you know, again, just jumping all around. Like I don't remember after a movie's over being left with like such a mystery, the whole, like what's in the case. Like yeah. oh, it's, it's no big deal now. It's just that this is part of like yep. the film lore. But at the time, like, you have discussions with your friends about that. You need to know what's in the fucking case and then all the yeah. theories about what's in the case. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's, so much it's the ultimate, it's the ultimate MacGuffin, which is what Hitchcock used to use or the Maltese Falcon, that classic movie, mm-hmm. like the Falcon itself is a MacGuffin. You think the film's about this and by the end it's has, it doesn't matter. doesn't matter at all. Same thing with, um, I mean, it may matter at all, like, you know, but I mean, you get what I mean. Like by yeah. the end, that's not what we're, uh, that's not what it's about. And this film is definitely, definitely not about the case, but the entire premise of the film is like based on the fact that these two hitmen have to go get this case, you know, like that's the whole start of the film, you know, I mean, after the pumpkin and honey bunny stuff, of course, but, and then the cast is so wor- weird, like. Like, I think, wasn't Phil Lamar on, like, Mad TV or something? Um, and If you don't know the name, then it doesn't matter, because he was never a big deal. But I used to watch a lot of Mad TV. I'm trying to open it, and for some reason, it's not opening. Um, but uh, Phil Lamar plays uh, the dude that, Marvin, that gets shot in the head. I think I fucking shot Marvin in the head, or whatever. Uh, which is also hilarious. Amanda Plummer, I'd seen in a few things, like independent films. She was in here. It was awesome. John Travolta re completely redid his career. Uh, Sam Jackson, I actually knew from Do the Right Thing and Goodfellas, um, which are both great. But again, small roles. And and Do the yeah. Right Thing, that Spike Lee movie, um, he plays the radio guy. Like the like occasionally you'll hear the radio on. He's like the voice, and you see him. And stuff, but he's not like a major player. Same with Goodfellas; he's just one of like their the crew's like street geeks. You know what I mean? And then Dude, they kill him later. Both of those movies, he was just the robber from Coming to America, and you yeah, know he, exactly. he at least has like um, a bit more of a pivotal role, plot line wise, at least in uh, Goodfellas. But still, he's in and out. You know, like he's yeah. he's in and out of that movie. Eric Stoltz, eighties big 80s teen actor kind of a thing completely different you know like he's just doing something you know it's the dude that was in mask you know what i mean <laughs> with like the guy like the formed dude, like teenager I, I, or whatever you know? i love rocky dennis yeah um but yeah so my, my point is uh th- there's just so much R- rosanna arquette with all the piercings and and um uh, I don't know, man. It's just the dialogue, every fucking thing. Say what again, motherfucker? Like all, like all of these things are so perfect. This movie holds up, like you said. I think it's timeless. 
Um, and and everything fucking holds up about this movie. I watched it I, sometime during the pandemic. I think it was last year. And uh, I, I'll I'll say this, and you you've said something very similar to this. You you said, um, you know, whenever someone asks me what my favorite of X is, my default is just say this. You know what I mean? Like your default right now is to say that Django Unchained your favorite movie. Like that's just if someone asks you, you won't you don't even need to think much about it. You just say that's eh, this movie. You know what I mean? Um, I would really, really need to rethink this if I was going to give a, a firm answer. But if anyone ever asked me my favorite movie, I always say Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. It's the first American film that brought me back to the States cinematically and blew my mind. Because when I first got in the movies, I went from watching like The Rock and Dumb and Dumber as my favorite movies to watching like 60s French New Wave movies. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like my buddy was like, dude, check out the French New Wave. And I was like blown away by it. I mean, it's it's weird and it's abstract, but that's why I loved it. Because I just like mm-hmm. didn't get it. And it was like so new and interesting and exciting for me. And then I was watching, uh, there were some kids uh, at the college in my town uh, that I had uh, randomly just like found online and started talking to because I wanted to write screenplays. And uh, they were like, dude, you need to watch Kurosawa. So I started watching all these cool, like, Kurosawa samurai movies. Got really into, like, Japanese cinema. And then I was really into Italian cinema for a while. And it wasn't until, like, Pulp Fiction that it just, like, brought me back. Like, it made me go, wow, we make cool movies like this? Because mm. all I was used to were just, like, random blockbusters and shit. Yeah, yep. You know what I mean? Um, and so uh, Pulp Fiction has, like, a really, really, really special place in my heart. Um, and I'm really glad that it's our favorite. Uh, the bummer about this movie, though, is Roger Avery actually uh, contributed to the screenwriting of this. And I just want to give Roger Avery some uh, some props here because he came up with a lot of the stories uh, and things that are in the movie. And a lot of people only claim Tarantino as a writer. And unfortunately, uh, Tarantino often claims a lot of it himself. Um, <laughs> but Roger Avery is a filmmaker who was also uh, writing for this um, he also helped with things on uh, Reservoir Dogs. He didn't write it, but he was in the movie, actually. Uh, and he also uh, wrote and directed, I believe, Killing Zoe, which was a movie from the 90s. Came out the year before Pulp Fiction. Uh, he's done a lot of stuff as well. Um, he did The Rules of Attraction. Did you ever see that movie? Yeah. The Rules of yeah. Attraction. I actually fucking loved that. I need to watch that again because that was like I was like really high on that movie. But the point is, just uh, I, I always like to bring this up because Roger Avery just completely gets ignored. Um, and he was on stage at the Oscars and shit whenever people won stuff, you know? Um, but no one remembers that. They just remember Tarantino holding the statue. Yeah, so yeah. props to Roger Avery for some of that writing as well, because it's really good. Um, but any, any final thoughts on, on Tarantino stuff? Or so, Pulp Fiction? Well, Pulp Fiction. So, like I said, some of my friends are just like huge Tarantino nerds. So, uh, my friend Dan Tur, actually um, one of the best men at my wedding coming up, sometimes we'll like speak exclusively in Tarantino quotes and or at least references. Yeah. And it's always like trying to one up each other on like um, the more deep cut ones. So I feel like so to me, this isn't a deep cut in the slightest anymore, but to some other people it might be. But this has gotten so out of control that even with my broader friend group who aren't even Tarantino guys might not even know where this comes from. But referring to things straight up as totem pole is um, just part of our vernacular. 
and it stems yeah. from the uh, the watch, the beginning of the watch segment when Butch is watching the cartoon. And um, oh my god, yeah, 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 uh, that dog's stupid. He think totem pole alive. So that started as uh, something that was stupid or sucks or whatever. Like, yo, know, did you hear what? So-and-so said, yeah, they're so stupid they think totem pole alive. And it gets more and more convoluted to now if something like sucks or is stupid, we could just straight up be like – and this is like you know, years and generations of friend groups removed that just get the joke where it's like, yo, this show tonight is going to be shot. Like, oh, why? Yo, promoter, totem pole. They just get it. Um, I mean, stuff like that. I mean, I'm all about the overly convoluted jokes. And usually, no, I love it. Yeah, it's a deep cut joke. But the fact that, you know, yeah, yeah, it's been like well over 20 years that something so stupid has been so broad, (laughs) broad and ingrained in my life, you know, that I owe to this movie. Um, Dude, I'm just saying, man, the Reservoir Dogs was the one that really changed things, but this movie, Pulp Fiction, opened it up. And I know in my heart, Pulp Fiction is a better movie, um, regardless. That same thing, you know, right now, oh, what's your favorite movie? Oh, well, you know, my, I know it might not be the best. And preface, 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 whatever, uh, Django Unchanged. But someone said, what do you think the best movie is? No argument whatsoever. Pulp Fiction. How, how do you yeah. disagree? How do you disagree with that? But um, <laughs> you know the the dance sequence is so great. Um, even though because it comes off as like Tarantino trying to be so cool, but then by the end it just is so cool. So you're like, fuck, you got it. Um, but my my uh, wife and her dad, whenever we got married, uh, they danced to that song, um, and did those dances. That's oh how much man, we love it because uh, her dad used to watch it all the time. So she grew up from like the age of twelve up, for better or for worse, watching Pulp Fiction all the time uh so that's like a combined love of the two of ours yeah uh dude i wish i could rip that off because i'm getting married in less than a month and i've been dreading picking out a song to do the uh the mother's son dance to i don't even want to do that i think it's so weird but my mom wouldn't even get it and she you know so that's not (laughs) that's not gonna fly it is a great um, idea though but i mean dude overall just talking about tarantino and other things that we like you know um to me Tarantino is the grunge to the film industry's hair metal, uh, where it was stuck for a little while. And Tarantino is the ECW to wrestling's WWF and WCW at the time, uh, where it didn't just change its industry, but it brought in fresh, uh, I don't say consumers, but, um, you know, fresh eyes and fresh ears to a whole different thing. And people, in my opinion, started watching movies uh, en masse differently after Tarantino. Um, The same way, you know, grunge and, you know, Nirvana changed music and, you know, in a way killed hair metal and, you know, ECW didn't kill WWF and WCW. But if anybody says that ECW wasn't the catalyst for everything changing in wrestling, uh, you're lying to yourself and you're rewriting history because it absolutely, uh, absolutely (laughs) did. Um, And I mean, just that spirit is something that I'm going to uh, get off on as well as the actual work. Because I mean, I, I was a hair metal guy. I still love hair metal. But when 
Nirvana happened and Alice in Chains, like, of course I was fucking elbow deep into all that shit. And same thing with ECW, man. I never stopped liking WWF or WCW, but it was so fresh when ECW really hit my consciousness. It was like, well, anything that cool, anything that's cool that's happening in WCW or WWF afterwards, it's a derivative of what already happened in ECW and it expanded upon it. But um, I, I think for Tarantino to do that, and in my opinion, to have banger after banger after banger, um, even if, um, you know, Death Proof or Hateful Eight, which I have on the bottom of my list, uh, they're still home runs to me. They're still absolute home runs. Now, they might be um, an empty base, you know, 320-foot home run. But hey, man, the scoreboard still shows a fucking home run. It doesn't yeah. matter that Pulp Fiction was a base clearing, you know, 500 foot grand slam. Granted, now there's four runs on the board, but at the same time, as far as stats go, that's a fucking home run on that guy's uh, stat card every time. So yeah. um, the fact that he was able to change shit the way he did, and in my opinion, still batting a thousand with a nine for nine, nine at bats, nine home runs as well, not just nine for nine. I think it's just, it's fucking unprecedented. Um, Anybody that would argue with that, I would have that debate, but it would be a debate, you know, like, and I, my opinion, flawless uh, resume. And like I said, we didn't even talk about his, in detail, we didn't talk about the adjacent movies. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like I said, you know, I, I may have my criticisms of Tarantino uh, up to this point, but it is uh, undeniable of the impact that especially movies like Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction had. Um, but once he hit Kill Bill and started moving on from there, you know, he started getting into more genre wacky territory. But those are still so fun. You know what I mean? And and like I said, I even talked about uh, Glorious Bastards, which is after that time, and how much I think that script is just so incredible. Uh, and, uh, man, he, I, am excited to see, you know, he said he was going to make 10 films and he was going to retire because he never wanted to be, uh, one of those filmmakers that got old and s- made shitty movies. Like mm-hmm. he wants his legacy to be these great things that he's proud of. So I'm really eager to see what he does for this. Uh, if he actually does end it, this final film, because he has also talked about doing maybe a TV show, and also just writing novels uh, is something that he would be interested in. But I have to ask before this would be my closing uh, thing with you. Uh, did you ever see the CSI, uh, the crime scene investigation TV series? He did two episodes, part one and part two. He wrote them and directed them. Did you ever see those? You know what? I'm like mad because I haven't seen them and it's been brought to my attention and been like in and out of my consciousness. So yeah. I, I haven't. And I'm like a bad it's, fan for not having. No. I mean, how are you going to get them now unless you just find CSI on the streaming service? Some, But uh, I, I remember uh, my mom loved CSI and she was watching as the first episode I'd ever seen. Coincidentally, had no idea Tarantino had anything to do with this. So I'm watching it and I'm like. This is not that bad. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I'm watching it and I'm like, OK, OK. And it had been on for a long time, you know, and uh, the whole 
the premise of it is I'll just say it vaguely because if you ever do want to watch it, I don't want to ruin it for you. But one of the main characters, at least I think it was a main character because I never really watched CSI uh, that much other than when my mom was. But that the one of the main characters gets buried alive, but he can still communicate with other people because he's not buried so deep his phone doesn't work. So it's like okay. the movie Buried, like, <laughs> you know, with Ryan Reynolds, like it's kind of that, but it's like CSI. So it looks like CSI. But you like once I realized Tarantino did, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is like a Tarantino story ish, like light. Yeah. Right. It's Tarantino light because, of course, there's uh, a history for CSI at that point, And uh, there are characters that are outside of Tarantino. I mean, he's clearly coming into a thing. Yeah. Um, but you should just check him out for fun just so you can complete the. Yeah, the Tarantino thing. Absolutely. Um, it's a lot of fun. But anyways, with that, Rick, we're going to go ahead and close out for this time. I really appreciate you coming on, buddy. You got it, man. Thank you. And I apologize for being late. And now I got to go uh, eat dinner. But hey, man, great time. <laughs> I love being able to you know talk about fun stuff and not just um, telling people to buy my new record. <laughs> <laughs> Tell people where they can buy your new record. Uh, anywhere. Fun. Yeah, you could stream it everywhere you stream stuff and you could get it physical copy the vinyl actually is coming in soon like but not like oh it's coming in soon and it's not like it's actually on its way in europe it's already there um uniqueleaderrecords.com by culture of violence by extinction ad or just uh, stream it everywhere um spotify yeah. and the other stuff places you go check out extinction ad you guys are pretty cool it's admit. okay it's not bad <laughs> As I say farewell to Rick Jimenez this time, uh, I hope that uh, you guys had a fun time hearing about our Quentin Tarantino preferences, if you will. And uh, as I said last episode, I'm really curious to hear your rankings or at least maybe your favorite or favorites um, of, of Tarantino. I would love to hear you know uh, what those titles are and if you are willing, tell me why. Maybe I'll share some of those on the show. Uh, but like I said, hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can also hit us up at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com Please come back next week. I will have some uh, good old stuff for you. We're coming up on 100, episode 100. Keep up with us. Alright? For now though, I love you guys. Good night. Good luck. Take it easy. <laughs>